chapter 14. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, our Father in heaven, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would work in our hearts this morning as your word is read, as your word is reflected on. May you store these deep truths in our hearts that we would be consumed by them and they would consume us. Do this work by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. You know, one of the, the funny commercials that aired during the Super Bowl this year that our family loved was uh, one about avocados. But avocados from, from Mexico, to be sure. And this, the scene of this commercial begins actually in the Garden of, of Eden. And Eve's taken a, a bite out of the piece of the forbidden fruit. And then this, you know, the sky darkens and it shows... Adam, and Adam declares, I'm naked, and he covers himself, and uh, then the squirrel pops up out of a tree, offering Eve a, a bite of this luscious avocado from Mexico, and uh, this squirrel says, you know, uh, you know, avocados from Mexico make everything better, and then it kind of fast forwards to modern day New York, and everyone's actually walking around the streets naked again, because the avocado fixed the curse, so no more sin, right, no more need for clothing, it's amazing, and although I don't think this commercial had much intent on making a theological claim, except for maybe the veracity of avocados to cure all your ills, um, they actually got to a, a deep truth, that, that in the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, in sin, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And uh, there's, a, there's a problem that's outside of our own ability to fix ourselves. We need something outside to come in and fix it. And this scene in the final moments of Jesus' life, I think highlights just how pervasive sin is in this world. Just how, how pervasive it is and just how much we need something to come and fix it. Because here we find Peter. Peter, who's one of the inner circle members of the disciples of Jesus' life. He's a friend of Jesus. Peter, who has seen all the miracles. Peter, who hours earlier swore to Jesus, I would never deny you. I would die before that happens, he says to Jesus. Just hours before this moment. And here, hours later, we see him saying, no, I don't know who this Jesus is that you speak of. How does this happen? 
Why does this happen? How could Peter possibly deny Jesus after everything he's seen, right? Peter walked on water with Jesus. Peter saw the transfiguration and Jesus glorified and and all that happening. How could he possibly deny Jesus now with this servant girl just asking who he is and if he's one of the disciples? Although there's probably lots of right answers to this question, I think at least one of the answers to this question and the one I'm going to focus on and one I would think is primary here is his own sense of self-preservation. Right? Peter is scared. He's afraid. He's probably afraid what's going to happen to to Jesus, afraid what's going to happen to me, afraid of his own life and those he loved that he's been around the last three years of his life, spending following Jesus and out of fear, out of fear of what's happening, out of this sense of self-preservation, his survival instinct kind of kicks in and he lies. He covers up, even to the point of lying about his affiliation with the man who he thinks is the Messiah, Jesus. Because this is what self-preservation does. It leads you to believe that your life depends on you. And so when backed into a corner, you will do whatever it takes to survive, even if it means denying your affiliation with the Messiah. And while it's easy to read about Peter uh, in the gospel stories and all his foibles uh, and judge him, I think what we're meant to see instead is ourselves. That we are just like Peter. We each have an internal sense of self-preservation that says when push comes to shove, do whatever you have to do to survive because your survival in all areas of life actually depends on you and you alone. And in this, there's part of you that doesn't fully trust Jesus, that doesn't trust his work in your life. And when that part of you is threatened, you hide like Peter hid, like Adam and Eve hid in the garden. And for us, this can look like denying our affiliation with Jesus for, for fear, for fear of how that association might alienate us with coworkers or neighbors or whatever that is. But I think it, where I tend to see this happen the most, self-preservation, where I see self-preservation play out the most in people's lives is in the hiding of our sin. Out of trying to survive, we hide our sin from each other. We don't like to tell people our sin because we want to look strong. We want to look dependent. We don't want to look as like we're needy people. And also we wonder, if we tell people our sin, will people forgive us? Or will they cast us out? We're ashamed of it. And so we hide. We hide our nakedness. And in those moments, hiding feels life-giving. Because when, whether you are, are hiding your sin or, or your Christian affiliation, it, it feels safe in that moment. And here in the story of Peter, and this is the final time we see Peter in the Gospel of Mark, we see not just his story on the pages of scriptures, but we see the whole story of scripture here. I think the story of our own lives on display. And so as we see this story, I think we're going to see this story in in three parts. Um, And as we see his story, we see our story. The first is this, we're going to see Peter's sin, we're going to see Peter's repentance, and Peter's restoration. So first... Peter's sin, I think what we see is that Peter's sin is our sin. Peter's sin is our sin. Look with me back at verse 66. It says this, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And so this is kind of like, uh, this scene is happening kind of simultaneously as a scene uh, in, from the week before, which if you weren't here, it was uh, Jesus before the council. 
And so Jesus is being interrogated by, by the high priests and the chief priests and the scribes. And as that's happening, Peter finds himself outside the doors of that courtroom, right? And, uh, and the other people that were there would have been the servants to the priests, tending to the needs of the priests. And, and this particular servant girl we find from the gospel, John, she was watching the door. That was her job. And remember, this is all happening in the middle of the night. So it's not like there's just random people around at this time. It's just a few. Uh, this is probably around 3 to 4 a.m. So it wasn't just the chief priests who were woken up in the night for this event, but the, the, the servants of the chief priests. And one of the servant girls spotted Peter and recognized him. And this servant girl belonged to the high priest. And so if you remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane, she would have been a fellow colleague to the, to the servant boy whose, whose ear Peter cut off. So she probably would have witnessed all of that in the garden. In verse 67, we see this. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. So again, she was with Jesus. Uh, she was with the, the high priest when, in the garden when Jesus was arrested, and she probably saw Peter. In fact, she probably saw Peter several times as the, as the, the chief priest and high priest sparred with Jesus, and she recognized him. And it's interesting, you know, the scriptures don't really tell us what her intentions are with her statement here. But clearly, we find Peter did not want to be associated with Jesus. He didn't want to be recognized. We see this in verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Right? This is his first denial. And since he's kind of just playing dumb, he's like, what was... What was that? Uh, I don't understand what you're saying. You know, he doesn't outright deny Jesus. But it's like when someone asks you a question that you don't really want to answer. You're kind of like, what? Huh? What did you say? Oh, yeah, you said some words. That's nice. And you go and you walk somewhere else. This is kind of what's, what's happening here. But uh, it heats up a little bit. Verse 69, it happens again. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And so it, it begins to happen again, right? She sees him again, and she keeps seeing him because there's no other reason, again, to be outside this house in the middle of the night unless he knew him or was one of the servants, and she knows he's not one of the servants. But Peter shrugs it off again and keeps trying to find a spot where he can stay by himself. I kind of imagine him being kind of like an introvert at a party, right? It's the last place an introvert wants to be. And when an introvert is at a party, what do they try to do? They try to hide and find a quiet spot where they can just be by themselves. And that's, that's how I picture Peter. He's like, trying to find that quiet corner of the courtyard where just no one will notice him. Can I just find a quiet place by myself and think? And to be fair to Peter for a moment, just think through everything he's witnessed. He has a lot to process. The, the, the revolution to overflow uh, the, the Romans was over. His Messiah was arrested. He's probably thinking, what does that mean for, for Jesus? What does that mean for others. What does that mean for my, my own life? And so I imagine him outside the courtyard wrestling with all these things, wondering what in the world is happening. This isn't the way it was supposed to go. Wondering what's happening. Wondering for his life. And he wants to be near because he wants to hear, hear the verdict as soon as he can. What's going to happen to Jesus? Uh, and so he wants to be near Jesus to find out, to hear probably experiencing all kinds of doubts and fears. This is what I would call kind of one of those faith-altering events. Maybe you've gone through a faith-altering event in your own life where everything that you could see told you that God and Jesus wasn't real. 
This usually happens when all your expectations of what Jesus ought to do in your life, none of them happen. And in those moments, you have to make a decision. Do I hold on to this faith? Is, Is God still true? Is he still real in the dark when I can't see? Or do I let go of this faith? I think this is the kind of pressure that Peter is feeling that's kind of mounting up around him. He just wants to be left alone to process, but he also wants to be near Jesus so he can find out what's going to happen to him. But they don't leave him alone. They keep on pressing. And next we see the crowd gathering around him as he's kind of caught the attention of everyone. I imagine, you know, there's not that many places to hide in this courtyard. And we find this happening in in verse 70 to 71. But again, he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly are, are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This is kind of the, the boiling point where he's kind of poked and prodded. You see this with siblings when they poke and prod each other until someone erupts. This is kind of what I imagine. This is just poking and prodded until he can't help it. It just all comes out. Calling down a curse. And the wording of this, I think, in the translations is a, is a little strange. I don't think he's actually calling down a, a curse against himself the way you might think he is. But I think the way this wording, wording is, is the way, what this wording is trying to get a point is that he's basically saying this to them. To hell with you for making these kinds of accusations against me. He's, he's angry. To the point where Mark is drawing out for us that there's no accident in his denial. It's forceful. It's purposeful. He says, I do not know this man. I do not know him. It's purposeful. And his sorrows for the events at hand and his own sense of self-preservation, and his own sorrow, he denies Jesus. I think about Jesus at this moment. Where is Jesus? He's the one that's actually inside that home. Being interrogated. About to walk on the road to the cross to die in his place. And while Jesus is suffering... And beginning to, down that road of suffering, Peter is hiding. While Jesus is on trial, Peter is lying, doing whatever he can to survive, even if it means turning his back on Jesus. It's just stark contrast in these scenes playing out. And what Mark is trying to get you and I to consider is this, that in Peter, we should see ourselves. That in Peter... His sin is not just his own, but it's actually, I think, a summary of the sin of sins. It's a microcosm of the garden. It's all being replayed in a way here. It's a retelling of the fall in the garden. It's it's subtly happening. There's a sense where kind of time is folded on top of itself, and and a rooster is is about to crow again and ushering in a new day. Jesus, the one who's coming as a second Adam, is is on the verge of undoing the curse and all its power. And as he is taking up that mantle, as he is heading down that road to Calvary, as this new covenant head bringing healing to the world, we are reminded why we need him to come and do this in the first place. We need him to come and and to do his work, to undo the curse that's brought into the world by Adam and Eve, because we cannot undo it ourselves. Because left on our own, we're left in this same cycle of repeating the same sins as Adam and Eve, of preserving our own lives. So we need a God, like Jesus, who's going to come and pursue his people. Because left to our own, on our own devices, we will never hold on. We will never pursue him to the ends of the earth. We will until we hit a bump in the road. And then we'll be like Peter. And here in this story of of one of Jesus' best friends, 
We are remembering our deep and our profound need for the second Adam. That we are a fallen people. And in the fall in the garden, not just Adam and Eve fell into sin, but all humanity did. All right, Peter's sin is their sin and our sin as well. And this is something that we can't fix. It's a brokenness that only God coming in the flesh can fix. And the hard truth here is that we are like Peter. That we, we too try to preserve our own lives. We try to preserve our own reputations in life, our, our own lives, our own status. And in our effort to preserve ourselves, we too at times will deny Jesus. We deny our relationship with him, with others, for fear of association. We deny our association with him when we ignore his laws for how he governs our lives. When we live like as if there's no God in this world, we become like Peter. And when the heat gets turned up, we struggle to stand. And what makes this moment perhaps even more weighty is remembering what Jesus actually said in chapter 8, verse 38 of Mark, where he says this. Jesus says that whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of. I think Mark wants you to remember those words as you consider what's happening here with Peter. Peter is ashamed of Jesus. What does that mean for Peter? We too are at times ashamed with, with Jesus. What does that mean for ourselves? Does this mean that Jesus forgets us? And just as the fall in the garden, though, is not the end of the story of God and his pursuit of his people, so our shame is not the end of it either. And this is where we find the second part of this story leading us to, and it's Peter's repentance. We find that Peter's repentance shows us the way of repentance, because here we don't just find Peter's sin, but his turning from sin as well. Look with me here at verse 72, it says this. And immediately the roaster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered. You know, it's kind of funny. You'd think he would remember when he heard the first rooster crow, like, oh, I think something's gonna happen. It was just a few hours earlier that Jesus told him this, but for whatever reason, his mind was darkened and he didn't remember until it happened a second time. Up until now, he didn't know, he didn't remember Jesus, but now he does know. And what did he remember? It says he remembers his words. It says that he remembered Jesus' words that he gave to him just moments earlier. And what were those words that he spoke to Peter? Well, it says here that Jesus said that, he would, that Peter would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed twice. And as Peter remembers these words, he begins to walk down the road to, of repentance and kind of shows us the same robe, that we too can repent of our sin and our self-reliance. And, you know, the, the word repentance is one of those words that Christians use a lot. So, but what is it? What, is, what does it mean to repent? Well, I think simply, to repent is, is to turn, right? From going one direction to going another direction. But I think the deeper question is, well, how do we actually do that? It's one thing to say, yeah, I repent, but how do we actually stop doing something and start doing something else, especially when that thing that we're doing that we're supposed to turn away from, we probably actually kind of like. How do we actually do this? How do we turn from one way of living to another? How do we actually stop sinning? And I think there's, there's two aspects to that repentance that we find here that, that show us how we actually stop and turn another direction, how we actually repent. And the first is this, that your, first your sin has to be exposed. First, your sin has to be exposed. I think the, the first part towards repentance is a confrontation with your sin. You have to know your sin. 
And that happens here as, as Peter's own memory actually is the thing that confronts him with his sin. As a quick aside, I think this is one of the reasons why we ought to meditate on God's word and why we need to memorize scripture um, so that his word will be the thing that actually convicts us, that the spirit brings to mind at times they're probably annoying to us, but he brings it to mind so we remember our sin and we can actually stop doing it. But first, you have to be confronted and here we find Peter confronted with it. And the truth is, no one actually wants to be confronted with their sin, do they? No one likes being exposed in their sin. Rarely will somebody thank you for that when you, if you went to them and said, hey, I think there's sin in your life here. Maybe they will eventually, but usually in that moment, people don't like it. But the truth is you can't turn from something until you know what you're actually turning from. For instance, if I was driving east, and I think I'm driving west, but I keep on driving east, I can't actually start heading west until someone tells me, hey, your compass is broken. You gotta turn from this direction and go this direction. Right? You, you need to, you know, we find first repentance requires a sober-mindedness about your sin. You have to know it. You have to be confronted by it. It has to be exposed in your life. You have to know that what you're doing is wrong. And that happens, and the way we know what we're doing is right or wrong is God's word. God's word is ultimate authority that tells us if what we're doing is right or wrong. And it's his word that exposes us. But exposure alone, I don't think, is actually enough to lead you in the path to repentance. I think there's a second and perhaps even more challenging aspect to repentance here. And it's this, that we need to be brokenhearted about our sin. We need to be brokenhearted about our sin. And that's what we find here in Peter. That he not only recognized that what he has done was bad, but he's actually undone by it. It says this, and he broke down and wept. This language is actually very physical. To be broken down is to actually like dropping into a ball. It's as if he crumpled up into a ball on the ground. If you think about Peter, once he was worried about how he looked, you know, he was worried about how people saw him. He was worried about his own self-preservation, but as he comes face to face with his sin, he is undone with sorrow. Right? It doesn't matter to him if people know who he is anymore. I think so often for us, this is where our path of repentance is short-circuited. Right? Often, we've probably been confronted by our sins. I think many of us know where we tend to struggle, or at least some of where we struggle. Maybe someone has even confronted you with your sin, but we just don't think it's a big deal, or maybe we don't agree with it, or maybe we're just kind of like, meh, you know, it's, it's just this thing I struggle with. And we think this because we're actually not really brokenhearted about it. We don't think it's that big of a deal. We, we, we don't see our sin for what it is, right? But, but scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. The death is a turning away from the laws of God, and if you love your own sin, you will actually never turn from it. You won't turn from it until it begins to break your heart, until you learn to see your sin as God sees it. For Peter, right, if you love your life more than anything else, you will never risk it for anything. And this is extremely problematic for us because I think there's another character in this story that you end up mirroring. Right, this story that we've kind of been taking our, our time through actually happens all in this whole evening, happens within a few hours. And there's another character that you end up mirroring, and I think it's Judas. You know, Peter, when confronted with his sin, what does he do? He repents. He turns from God. He's sorry for his sin. And this story is read alongside, and I think compared to the story of Judas, 
Judas, who in a similar way, but not in the same way, turned his back on Jesus. And when confronted with it, when he realized what he had did, he was undone. And what does he do? Does he repent? Does he turn to Jesus? No, he hangs himself. I think not subtly, Mark is showing us that when we don't take our sin for real, when we don't take it seriously, we end up playing the part of Judas. So maybe a question we need to ask is this. So how do we actually learn then to actually hate our sin? Especially when we love our sin, if we're honest. You can't just make yourself sad about your sin. You can't just, you know, fake cry Jesus. Start thinking about your dog that died and start crying and maybe he'll, you know, think that you're actually sorry for it. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Jesus knows your hearts. You know, one, one of the things I've been reading through uh, this month has been the, the book of Exodus. And, um, and the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh always kind of stands out to me. It's a strange thing that happens in the book of Exodus, right? You got all these signs and wonders are being done and yet his heart is hard and he does not believe and he does not release the people even though he's seen all these amazing things. And, uh, and one of the things this kind of brings to mind is that there's only one solution for a heart that is hardened against sin, against God. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit softening your heart. God alone can soften your heart to your sin so that you can take it seriously. So you can, you can care more about ridding yourself from sin than you do your own life and preserving it. And if you struggle with loving your sin, as I do at times too, and you, you likely know what those things are in your life, the answer for us is to ask God to help us to grieve over our sin. The answer for us is to ask that his spirit would soften our hearts, that he would give us a sober-mindedness about our sin that we wouldn't turn to it, that we would pray the end of Psalm 139, which says this, try me and know my thoughts, right? See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is repentance. This is what we're called to walk in. And the, the path of repentance both breaks us down but builds us back up. Because being exposed in our sin never feels good. It's never fun. But it's actually only there that you can find life. And it is the life you actually deeply want, even if you don't know you want it, because it's the only life where you don't have to cover. It's the only life where you don't have to be ashamed. Life where you can live in the freedom that's found in Christ and his people, trusting in his light over the darkness that sin promises. This is where repentance leads you. You know, when Peter repents here, he didn't care anymore about whether or not he was recognized, or if they carried him off in chains. All he cared about was his Savior. Right? He cared about his sin, and he was sorry for it. And I bet more than anything in the world, I bet he wished that he could ask Jesus face-to-face, -face, forgive me. I bet more than anything, he wished he could have another meal with him, which is what we all want when we confess our sins, right? And there's a word for this. It's restoration. And I think this is what we find here at the end of the story. We find Peter's restoration. And we find that Peter's restoration leads us to our own restoration. The end of repentance is not simply saying that you're sorry and stop doing bad things, but the end is much deeper and much richer. It's, it's restored relationship with God. It's healing, which I think we actually get. If someone sinned against you in a really bad way, betraying you, and they ask for forgiveness, and they're even sorrowful about it, and let's say they never did that bad thing again ever, is your relationship restored immediately in that moment? Well, of course not. Of course it isn't. 
But repentance is that gateway that leads you into the possibility of restoration. And although restoration, I would say, is not explicit in this text, you know, if you hold the page just right, you can kind of see it uh, between the lines. It's a joke. Um, it's, uh, although it's not explicit, I think it is here. Look with me back here at verse 72. Uh, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. What we see here is that he remembered the words of Jesus. What else did Jesus say to him on the same night when he predicted this betrayal? Jesus said, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And at the end of the Gospel of Mark, what do we find? We find an angel telling Mary and Mary and Salome this in verse 16, 7. There's one verse from the end. There's an angel speaking to, the, to these ladies. He says this, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, just like he said he would. What's interesting here in this final story is that Peter is singled out by the angel. Why is Peter singled out by this angel? Because Peter especially needs to hear this truth, that Peter may have forgotten Jesus, but Jesus has not forgotten Peter. Peter may have denied Jesus, but Jesus has never denied Peter. And in, in the same breath of telling Peter that he would deny him uh, over, his, over the meal, he tells him that he would meet him in Galilee, and so Jesus does. He meets him there on the, on the other side of the resurrection. And here we find Peter not only forgiven, but restored. He is resurrected to new life in Jesus. And what does Jesus do with this restored Peter? Does, does Peter have to earn his way back into this relationship with Jesus? Is he at the, at back at the bottom of the discipleship company, working his way back up into management? Which is how I, th I think we often think about our sin, that we have to earn our way back into good graces with God. But what happens here with Peter? Is this what happens with him? Well, no. Jesus takes Peter and does what with him? Well, he builds his church on him. Right, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this to Peter before this event even happens. He says that you are the rock on whom I will build my church. You know, Peter's name itself means rock. And this is what Jesus does with Peter. Peter, Peter Jesus builds his church on him. This is the Messiah we follow, the Messiah who not only forgives, but restores and makes us new. This is truth that as far as the east is from the west, this is how far our sin is removed from us. And in Jesus' death on the cross, we find that this is true and this is finished. The power of the curse has been broken. We have no more need to hide, no more need to preserve our own lives, no more need for shame over our sin. But Jesus, your second Adam has come not only to, to lead you to repentance, but lead you to restoration, to life restored in him, where he knows you and he loves you and he wants you to know him. Jesus never abandons his children. And what this final moment of Peter's character, Mark, teaches us is that even when you are chasing sin, this is true of you. Even when you deny Jesus with your lips or with your life, even in those moments of sins, Jesus' love is sure for you. He's never annoyed with you. He's never thinking, well, this is the final straw and I'm gonna remove my love. That's not how he thinks about you, but he is the God who remembers you the God who pursues you, the God who will see you in Galilee, 
which for us means that he will see us on the other side of resurrection, that he will preserve your life, he will forgive your sins, and he will walk with you in grace so that you grow in both your love for Jesus and his work on the cross. And you will grow in putting your sin to death, daily dying with sin and living to righteousness, not to earn anything, but because you already have his righteousness complete in Jesus. His love for you is not contingent on anything but himself and his work alone. Question for us is, do we believe this? Or do we struggle? Struggle trying to cover our own sins, still trying to preserve ourselves. Where we struggle with this, it only will lead to anxiety in our lives. It only lead to unrest, trying to do things that we can't do. In this, we're called to trust Jesus that walking in the light is the way to peace. That walking in the darkness might feel good for a moment, but it will crush your soul in the end. Only in the light can you find life. Let Jesus carry the burden of your sin. Only there will you find life. Because this is what Jesus has come to do and he's gone ahead before us. For Peter, he went ahead to Calvary. For us, he did that and he also went ahead for us to glory where he is now preparing our place. May we be a people who together learn to walk in the way of repentance and restoration, trusting Jesus to preserve our souls, trusting that walking with Jesus is better than avoiding our worst nightmares because his mercy is that good and his grace is sufficient. Pray with me. Holy God, merciful Father, may we learn to walk in repentance. May we learn to walk in dependence on you alone for our salvation. May we lay our deadly doing down and walk in the glory and in the peace that you have laid out before us. Strengthen us in this way, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.